Well, this has already been a glorious morning, hasn't it? And we could just skip the sermon, right? I didn't hear any amens. That's pretty good. I, I thought I, had, I have a lot of harumphs out there on that one, but uh, we're not going to skip the sermon. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is our text today. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 28 is uh, what we're looking at uh, this morning. Uh, you probably have noticed uh, different bumper stickers or buttons and so forth that that have a little uh, inside, a little uh, profound statement that uh, they're pretty simple. Sometimes they're humorous, but they also carry some uh, meaning to them. Uh, a number of years ago, there was a button that everybody wore said, please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. And that's a pretty good statement right there. Another poster I had in my office for a long time said, give me a fish and I'll eat today. Teach me to fish and I'll eat for a lifetime. Not the way I fish, but uh, for some of you. There's another poster that reminds us, uh, at least me, of this message this morning, and that is, bloom where you're planted. Uh, Paul was concerned that these people not be sidetracked by the circumstances of their lives and things that were driving them away from the things of Christ, and that they, they bloom where they're planted, where they serve Christ, where the Lord had placed them in a condition where he had found them, and, when he, and he called them to himself. Uh, we, the, the people at Corinth were restless people. Uh, they were a people that, uh, uh, that I think we can identify in many ways in their restlessness. A lot of their spiritual problems go, goes back to this restlessness, their unwillingness to accept the, the place where the Lord had given them to be. Uh, we have been a restless generation for a long time. Back in the 60s, we, we saw a, a huge amount of restlessness in our society. And then in more recent days, the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of the same thing with uh, riots and disrest and so forth flooding into our streets. But all that, all that unrest is coming out of hearts that are not at rest. Heart, it's flow out, flowing out of those restless hearts. Uh, we're a society on the move, even in the best of days, where a society is always looking for something better and something more, and we're going to be happy, we're going to be satisfied when we just have a little bit more, right? And when we have another job, another spouse, another church, another... Uh, car, another whatever, uh, then we're going to be happy, then we're going to be satisfied, then we're going to be pleased, and yet that never seems to happen for very long, does it? No matter what we get, we find ourselves continuing to be restless. Those changes don't last and don't work for very long. And because of this, we find in the New Testament as we come to the Scriptures that the uh, Lord never recommends to us and never tells us that social revolutions are rebelliousness against terrible governments or lots of money, or a lot of material gains. None of these things is what God says will bring you satisfaction, will bring you peace, or will bring you into a right relationship with God. Rather, the Scripture recommends a vital relationship with the Lord that will revolutionize every aspect of your life. It's an internal thing, an internal change that is brought about by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ as He comes into our life through the Holy Spirit and indwells us regenerates us and changes us. That is the great need of humanity. And as Paul writes to this church at Corinth, uh, they're struggling with all those issues as we struggle today. I don't think 1 Corinthians is anybody's favorite chapter. Uh, Galley mentioned, I think, her favorite verse a minute ago, didn't you? And uh, that, that is, this is not anybody's favorite chapter. I, I, if you ask somebody, what is your favorite verse of Scripture? What is your favorite text of Scripture? I've never heard anybody say 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, 
Matter of fact, if we want to just be a topical preacher, I'd just hop, skip, and jump to all the happy passages of Scripture and give you uplifting and happy messages week after week. But then I'd be unfaithful to the calling that God has given all of us to proclaim the full counsel of God. The Lord doesn't, didn't write these kinds of things like 1 Corinthians 7 and many other passages for us to skip over them and say they have no application for us because they certainly do. But the complication of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is that as that Paul writes these words, he is addressing some particular questions that they brought his way. In chapter 7 verse 1, for example, uh, he said, now concerning the things of which you wrote, I'm going to answer, he said, these questions. You've sent me some questions that I'm going to uh, I'm going to answer them. Verse 25, he says, now concerning virgins. He wants to talk about uh, unmarried women and the questions they'd ask him about that. And so this is a very particular set of issues. They're not, uh, not necessarily the same issues you and I face today in many ways. And so that gives us a challenge as we look at these things. At the same time, there are eternal, universal principles undergirding this whole message interlaced with whatever social and political issue the Corinthians were facing at this time, interlaced with all that were three specific challenges that they were facing that was threatening to divide them, threatening to truncate their spiritual life. And these challenges are challenges to some degree that we face today. They're challenges in the area of religion, in slavery, and in marriage. Is my intent as I've worked on this sermon this week for this passage of Scripture to, for me to, to dwell, deal with all three of those challenges. I'm not going to make it. So for those that have notes and are getting nervous when I get into the text and look at part three and haven't even started yet, that's next week. So hang on to your notes. We'll get there. But we're going to look at the first two challenges right now. And the first challenge is a religious one. He says this in verse 17 of chapter 7. He says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one... As God has called each, in this manner let him walk, and so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called while he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Now again, Paul is talking about a particular set of issues that you and I don't exactly face today. But he's talking about this religious system and the life that they were living at that time. Now, so let me give you some background. Uh, in the first century, the Jews hated the Gentiles, and the Gentiles hated the Jews. There was a huge racism issue, and nobody cared. Nobody wanted to fix it. Everybody was absolutely content with being racist. Uh, they hated one another, and they were very vocal about their hatred of one another. And that was bad in society and caused all sorts of problems, of course. But it really became a problem with the church, Right? Because now Jews and Gentiles were being saved and coming to the same church. So as, as the message of the gospel reached out throughout the, the communities, uh, Gentile communities, things began to change for the church. For many years, if you go back to the book of Acts, you'll find for many years the Jews, the Jewish Christians, were absolutely content in, with staying in Jerusalem. Uh, the Lord has sent, told them in verse, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, spread out, take the gospel to all the world. But instead of doing that, they were staying in Jerusalem, they were comfortable, their church was doing well, they were happy, people were getting saved, and they were very content to stay there. And so the Lord had to do something to move them. So he sent persecution. And persecution flooded into Judea and Jerusalem, and the Apostle Paul, who was, who was Saul at that time, was part of the leadership of that particular persecution. 
And so as the Jews were persecuted in Jerusalem, they began to spread out. As they spread out, they took the gospel. As they took the gospel, there were people saved and churches formed. On top of that, in Acts chapter 13, we find Paul and Barnabas uh, t 10, 12, 15 years later spearheading a missionary movement that began to go out throughout all the Roman and Greek world taking the gospel of Christ. And as they went out, churches were founded and people were saved. And so now the church is being flooded with Gentiles as well as Jews. As a matter of fact, by this time there were almost certainly more Gentile Christians at Corinth than there were Jewish Christians since this was largely a Gentile uh, city. So now what are we going to do? We're bringing together people that naturally hate one another who are now Christians who are coming together in, as one body of Christ at Corinth. What is to be done? If we lived in the 21st century, we'd just start two churches, right? We'd start a Messianic church over here, and we have a Gentile church over there, and we'll wave each other along the way, right? Uh, just a side note, I, I have real problems with Messianic uh, synagogues or churches. Uh, I see no purpose. It, it undermines the body of Christ to separate according to ethnicity and, and tradition, the, the New Testament didn't do that. The New Testament brought the Jews and the Gentiles together in one body, and that caused all sorts of problems, as you can imagine. The um, book of Galatians talks about this a lot. The book of Ephesians talk, talks about it, and Paul touches it here. What, what are they to do as they come together as Jews and Gentiles? The, Jews would, the Gentiles would say of the Jews, you're legalistic. I don't want to follow your traditions. I don't want to follow your kosher laws. I don't want to do all this. And the Jews, actually, according to Galatians and perhaps Ephesians, were saying, look, I'm not even sure you Gentiles are saved if you're not going to follow the Jewish customs and traditions and, and kosher laws. I'm not even sure you're Christians. You've got to become a Jew first. And that was a great battle going on that Paul uh, diffused over and over in his epistles, and he's touching on it even here. So what is to be done? Looking at our passage. First of all, they need to recognize that the Lord has called them as a Jew or a Gentile. Go back to verse 17 again. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. walk. And so I directed all the churches. Was any man called what he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone be called... In uncircumcision, he is not to be circumcised. Well, he's saying, look, some of you are ethnic Jews, and some are, of you are Gentiles. That is not the big issue. Don't try to become a, Jew, a Jewish Gentile. Don't, don't, don't neglect your Jewishness as an ethnicity. He says, those aren't the things that really matter. God has saved them to serve him on the basis of who they are in their uniqueness. So I'm going, to, I'm going to go off for a, a secondary application for just a second here on this, because none of us are dealing with this particular issue today. This, this is the uniqueness of this passage. But I want you to, to challenge you to consider that the Lord has uniquely fitted you for a role that he wants you to have. Every one of us have a background. Every one of us have uh, unique personalities and intellectual abilities and, and gifts and talents, and, and, and we have histories. We have histories sometimes where we've had very difficult lives uh, in our background. And some have had very easy lives and all, everything in between. 
And we take all these together and the Lord takes these situations, rolls them into a package that is you so that you're absolutely unique. Paul's going to talk about this a lot in 1 Corinthians 12 in the giftedness of the body of Christ. Every child of God is uniquely equipped according to Scripture and according to this passage and according to 1 Corinthians 12. Everyone is uniquely equipped to serve Him in a unique way. And I think that is a secondary application, at least in this passage of Scripture. Don't try to deny what you are. Don't try to walk away from from your background and your experiences. The Lord is using those to determine your ministry. And so if I could just get real real, uh, particular for just a moment, perhaps you have been in some very hard life situations, very difficult ones, and I don't even want to bring them up to get you thinking about it. Just just, you know what what it's like in some of your circumstances. And you wonder, why did God put me through this? You know, why have I gone through this hard time, these, these difficult backgrounds, this family situation, or whatever? Think for a moment that perhaps the Lord is taking those very situations and rolling it in with everything else He's created in you uniquely to form in you a unique relationship with Him and a unique ministry. He's not fumbled the ball with any life in this room. Everybody here is being, being groomed by God for the service He wants you to have. And yours is different than mine. And mine is different than yours. And so as He talks to these people in, in that regard about their Jewishness or Gentileness, He marches on to verse 19 as we return to the subject. And He says something in verse 19 that probably nobody liked. He says this, Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Now that first couple of phrases there had to rankle some souls. Circumcision, if you recall, was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. God had made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis 11 and, and 12 and 13 and 15 and 17. And we call that the Abrahamic covenant. Part of that covenant was this. Abraham, you follow me and I, I will, from your descendants I will build a nation. And we know that nation would be Israel. And that nation will be granted a a large chunk of ground in what we call today the Middle East. And God had made that promise to Abraham and to his descendants. And circumcision was not simply a physical act. It was the sign the Jews had been been following for over 2,000 years that reminded them day after day after day that the Lord had made that promise to Abraham who was their father. Much like we did with baptism today. The baptism is a symbol of a, of a reality. So circumcision was a symbol of reality to them of the Abrahamic covenant. And it meant everything to them. And so when Paul comes along and says circumcision is nothing, well, that had to be a difficult thing for them to handle, right? It's nothing? On this side of the cross, Paul is saying, look, the circumcision is a symbol you do not have to follow any longer. We now turn to the cross. And you, you no longer have to be circumcised for any spiritual reason. And uncircumcision is nothing. In other words, these things are, are non-events. They don't matter. You can be circumcised if you want to or not. It doesn't matter. But he goes on and says this, but what does matter is keeping the commandments of God. Obedience. Obedience. What matters? Obedience. Following Him. We all could echo that. We all could agree with that. So why do we struggle so deeply in obeying the Lord? 
What, what is our issue? Why is it that we, we often know things that God wants us to do and we will not do them? We refuse to do them. Why would we do that? Oswald Chambers, a well-known devotional writer from the past, said something very profound, I think. He said, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. I'll say that again. I think it's profound. The root of all sin is, is the suspicion that God is not good. If we really believe that God was good, really believe He was loving, really believe that He was all wise, really believe that He cared for us, who would ever stub up? But there's that suspicion built in our spiritual fallenness, our spiritual DNA, that says, I'm not sure, I'm not really sure that He is good. What if we turned it around and, and said, you know, because He is good, because He is loving, because He is wise, every one of His commandments not only are for the purpose of glorifying God, but also for the purpose of being good for us. It's kind of like guardrails. Somebody said this, wise travelers don't fret at the guardrails along the highway. They're grateful for, their, for the protection they afford from the cliffs below. When I went to college in Virginia, I, was, I grew up in Flatland, Indiana. There wasn't a curve in the county. And we, we were just flatlanders, you know. I don't, I don't, not flatliners, but flatlanders. And when I went to, to school in Virginia and started driving across the mountains back in the day, where those roads were curving in every direction, going up and down the mountains, it was quite an experience. And I noticed in many, many places as I was going across the mountains that there was no guardrails. And you could look right over the edge and see for a long, long ways. And I'm driving as a, as a flatlander on those mountains. And there was many occasions when I got a little nervous. You know, I knew that I didn't want to do a Thelma and Louise. That, that just wasn't in my, my, my plan. I didn't want to go over the edge and be found three years later by a hunter and his hunting dog. Uh, it scared me. Back in those days, the government had a strange idea. They thought you were smart enough to take care of yourself. <laughs> how, could, how could they come up with that? You know? And so there wasn't a lot of safety laws. You know, who cares? If, you, if you're going to be stupid enough to drive off the edge, go for it. That's kind of the mentality at the time. And so uh, as the time went on, the governors got more concerned about our safety and so forth. Some of it's good. Some over the top. But some of it's good. And one of the good ones is they started putting up guardrails. And as I've gone back over the years to that same area, there's guardrails in all those places where I was always concerned I was going to go over the edge. They realized not everybody is going to be wise. And so they put up the guardrails so that if I hit a guardrail, I might get banged up a bit, but I'm not going to end up at the bottom of the mountain. God's laws work that way sometimes, His commandments. God not only wants to be glorified in our lives, He, because He loves us, because He's good, wants the best for us. And his rules, his commandments, his precepts, and so forth are for our good. If you don't believe that, let me give you a, a little bit of homework. Go home to today and read Psalm 119. And in Psalm 119, the psalmist goes over and over and over for 176 verses, telling of the glory of the word of God and how much he loved to obey it. Take a look at scripture on that. So that was a religious challenges. Let's go to down to, uh, to uh, chapter 7, verse 20, and begin to look at the social challenges that they were facing. 
Each man must remain in the condition in which he was called. So banking off that, what, what condition is he talking about? He moves right into it in verse 21. He's going to talk about slavery. And this is a big issue facing us today as we talk about those kinds of things. So what does he say? Well, were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. Now I want to stop there for a moment. Who would have, who would have thought that Paul is going to say, don't worry about it? I mean, that just kind of blows you away, doesn't it? If you're a slave, he says, if you were, if you were called to Christ, if you came, became a believer as a slave, don't worry about it. Now, by the way, as I go through these next few verses, and I'm not going to, to pull it all together for our, con- our modern context quite yet, don't get too mad at me yet. Wait till after I'm done, then you can get mad. But at least wait till we get through the argument of Paul and then the application, okay? So he says, don't worry about it. But then he immediately goes on and says, if you can get free, if you have the opportunity of freedom, then go for it. Take that opportunity. Now we have to understand what's going on concerning slavery at that time to even get a hint of what's going on. Slavery in the first century Roman context was not identical to slavery in America as we understand it. Uh, in, in broadly speaking, in the Roman civilization, there were five economic classes of people. There were the poorest of the poor, what we would call the homeless today, many of them sick, many of them helpless. Uh, they had no sustenance at all, no means of, of support. Uh, they begged on the streets or just died. And by the way, nobody cared. That was the homeless, the, the poorest of the poor. One rung up was the day workers. And this was all over the Roman world and as well as the Jewish world. The day workers are those that uh, didn't have a regular job, but every day they went out and tried to find a job in the fields or construction. They worked from sunup to sundown, got paid at the end of the day, just enough food, hopefully, to feed their family and find a little bit of shelter. And that's what a big hopeful right there. One step up from that was slaves. Now we think of slaves as the, the worst rung, but it certainly was not. The slaves had food and shelter. They had someone to care for them. Slaves in the ancient time were not, as we understand most of slaves in America, they were often educated very well. Some of them were accountants, some were lawyers, some were philosophers, uh, some were everything. And the slaves, many of them had a great deal of freedom to do different things in the society. Slaves were the tutors, the teachers of the noble people's children. Uh, it was a very different system. And most, uh, one-third of the Roman Empire, we believe, were slaves at this time. And many of them by choice. Some were captured in war and whatnot, but, but many of them sold themselves into slavery because it was a better way to live than a day worker or homeless. The, third, the fourth rung would be the free people, and these would be closest to the middle class as we know it today. They had shops, they had farms, and so forth. They weren't wealthy, most of them, but they got by fairly well. They were the free ones. And then there was the nobles, the super rich. So here's five classes of economic people in the society. So when we come to the, to the slaves here, uh, we see a social problem uh, in the sense that they would not... Uh, that they would be working in a system that was uh, looking down on them, but still they were sustained. Now, here's, here's our problem. We've already seen that in the church as it was formed, there was this conflict between Jews and Gentiles, right? 
Now we got another conflict. Probably the majority of the Christians who came to Christ in Corinth were slaves. But there was also free people. And there's also probably some nobles. And probably some people representing all the classes. And so what happens when that kind of people, all that mixture of economic society comes together in one body, in one church? Let me put more, one more wrinkle into it. What happens when a slave who's well-educated, very sharp, very gifted, becomes an elder, elder in the church, and his master comes to that church? Could you imagine that? At home, the master's in charge. At church, the elder had authority over him. Ready-made for battle, right? And these are the kinds of things, and we'll see in 1 Corinthians 11, that the Corinthians were actually facing at this time. So what is Paul's instruction? Well, we saw verse 21. Don't worry about it. If you're able to be free, great. Then verse 22, he says, For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he was called while free is Christ's slave. Paul is, now I want you to get this. This is very, very important. Paul is raising our vision. He is raising the spiritual eyes of these people off of the situation of this life. And he's looking beyond that. And that's the same message that you and I need constantly. That we get our eyes off of this and all that's there and all the distractions that are there and we take a higher gaze to see Christ himself. And so he says here in this verse of scripture, he says, if you are a slave... You're the Lord's freeman. If you're a freeman, you're the Lord's slave. No matter what your economic status, no matter what your social status, if you're in Christ, you're his. You're his slave, you're his freeman, whichever the situation might be. We are free to follow him. Verse 23 says this, For you were bought with a price. Do not be the slave of others. Do not become the slaves of men. He's now going to nail down what's truly important. We are all, whether we're great or small or rich or poor or free or slaves, have been purchased, get this, as Christians we have been purchased by Christ himself for himself. And even if we're physically slaves, we are free in Christ. We're free from our sins. We're free from the power of the devil. We're free from eternal death. We've been set free in Christ. And so this powerful verse, the same phrase he used in chapter 6, verse 20, you have been bought with a price. Focus on that. But he says there, do not become the slaves of men. I, I don't think... When Paul says this, he is talking about don't sell yourself into slavery. Now, many people in that society did because it was a better way to live. I don't think he's talking about that. I think he's saying here, look, don't allow your thoughts, don't allow your values, don't allow your life to be controlled by the thinking of people. You don't belong to them. Even if e economically, socially you are a slave, you don't actually belong to that master. You belong to a better master, a higher master. You belong to Christ. He purchased you. You are His. And so don't let the values of this world 
control your life and determine what you become. So I think that's, that's a text that he's dealing with here. Verse 24, Brethren, each one is to remain with God in the condition which he was called. Don't get all bent out of shape on changing your social status. Dedicate yourself to being the servant of Christ. Another Christian leader said this, The first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. The first duty of every soul is not to find its freedom, but its master. We've spent a lot of time in, in the last decades we're concerned about our rights and our freedoms and so forth. That's not a bad thing. As I finish off today, you'll see that. That's not a bad thing. But there's something far better than that. Something far more important. Something far more eternal. And that is our freedom in Christ. Our master himself. And so instead of getting so bent out of shape about who might be controlling me, we should spend a lot more time about considering whether or not we are making Christ our master. Are we truly following the Lord Jesus Christ? I think that's the essence of his message, but I want to now to apply that to two different circumstances. For oppressed cultures today, talking in the 21st century, the majority of people in the world today can never expect a better life than they live now. Do you realize that? Do you realize that about half of the population in the world is under communist or totalitarian rule? Do you realize that a billion people on the planet are under Muslim rule? Do you realize that, that on top of that you have all the, all the tyranny and ugliness in, in Africa and other places where people will never, ever have a better lot in this life? Now we as Americans don't get that. But we are absolutely spoiled out of our socks. We, we think, you know, everybody's like us. We're not. The vast majority of the people in the world today have no hope whatsoever of ever bettering their lot in life. And that is true of Christians as well. That the vast majority of believers in the world today will never know a better economic situation, will never know more individual freedom, will never be able to better themselves in this life no matter what happens. It's been like that for thousands of years, and it's not going to change. That's kind of depressing, isn't it? So the next time you whine about America, remember that. If that's true, a, a believer in another culture, a culture that has no hope of being better than it is now, of them ever bettering themselves, they read this passage of Scripture and it gives them hope. It gives them a reason to live. Yes, I may never do better in this life, but I belong to Christ. And that's what's truly important. Let me give you an example. Back in, back in uh, 1932, Stalin announced in Russia a five-year plan to erase the name of God from Russia. He said in five years, the name of God will have been forgotten in Russia. No, it didn't happen. In 1953, Gorbachev 
was a premier, and he had his own plan to get rid of Christianity and God in, in one generation. In 1959, some of you might still remember, he came to the, the UN General Assembly, took his shoe off and pounded the desk and said to the United States, we will bury you. It didn't happen. He orchestrated, however, went home and orchestrated from 1959 to 1964 a great persecution of Christians in the attempt to wipe out Christianity in Russia. In 1964, Bresnik came to power and he continued the same plan. didn't work. In 1985, Gorbachev began to, he became premier and began to loosen up some of the reins, allowing some freedoms and even freedoms of religion in America, and, and the gospel was allowed to be preached one more time. In 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed, and the Iron Curtain came down. In 1989, two years before the collapse of the Iron Curtain, a man by the name of Rob Provost, who was an elder and a, a pastor at, at the Grace Church in California, and working with a master seminary there, was sent to Russia to see what they could do as it was being opened up for the gospel, to see what could be done in the preaching of the gospel. For 72 years, the gospel was never allowed to be preached openly. Churches were not allowed to function openly. Christians had died for the cause. Many of them had been persecuted and sent to, to prisons for, for day, years and years and even died there. When Provost came to, to Russia in 1989, he saw uh, the oppression and poverty of, of the likes he had never seen. There was nothing on the shelves. There, there was nothing anybody could buy. The people were in complete oppression. And the Christians were worse. Because if you were a Christian and you weren't persecuted and you weren't, you weren't killed, uh, then you, couldn't go to, you could not go to university and you could not get a good job. And so the Christians were the poorest of the poor in Russia in 1989 when he went there. The churches that existed went underground, and many people died for going to those churches. But when Provost went there, here's what he discovered. He said, I discovered the most dedicated, joyful Christians I'd ever met in my life. There's nothing like it he'd ever seen in America, even going to some of the best churches in the country. He saw people absolutely 100% sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. A people not destroyed by their oppression and their persecution, but a people that loved Christ. Here's what he discovered over the years as he continued to go back. He said, here's, here's what made the difference. The parents, the Christian parents of those children, of the children growing up there, had been taught, now listen, that if you had Jesus, Jesus, you didn't need anything else. They were absolutely complete in Christ. That's what they've been taught from childhood. And they believed it. The most dedicated Christians you'd ever seen. Throughout 72 years of persecution also, a persecution of oppressing the gospel, the Lord, through the instrumentality of communism, had kept out all the false teachers. And the church there was pure doctrine. They weren't deep, but they were pure. They had never had the cults. They had never had the prosperity gospel. They never had all these wacky people come in and destroy them. All they had was their word, the Bible. 
And the Lord had kept out those heresies over all those years so that the church could be pure. And, and Provo said they're absolutely in love in G- with Jesus Christ. Now let me reverse that. How about a society like ours? Just the opposite. We have endless possibilities for a better life. This passage is a hard sell, hard sell for such people, isn't it? It's hard to, to accept some of these things in a society like ours that is absolute, has absolutely everything. And everybody in the world wants to come here. For those that hate America and those who talk nasty about America, everybody out there wants to come here because of our opportunities and our freedoms, including, at this point, the freedom of religion. We can better ourselves, and we should. Paul's not saying, look, here's what I want to make sure. He is not saying, don't take advantage of the opportunities to better yourself. He's not saying, don't grow in, in your economic or your, or your social issues. He's not saying, here's a form of pie-in-the-sky theology where you don't worry about anything in this life, don't worry about slavery, don't worry about injustice, don't worry about oppression, don't worry about these things, and just simply focus on going to heaven when you die. That is not biblical Christianity. And that is not what Paul is teaching here, though some try to press it that far. Rather, the application is that no matter how good or how bad the circumstances of your life might be, there's always something far greater in Christ. You see the eternal principle? He has rescued us from sin. He has purchased us to be his very own. And it doesn't get any better than that. Many theologians have, and historians have looked and discovered that prosperity is far more deadly to the soul than oppression. Because we have all these opportunities to go astray from him. Provost in his book, which is called uh, Tearing Down the Wall, says this. With God's constant help, the majority of Christian parents and grandparents reared their children to believe that if Jesus hadn't, if they had Jesus, they needed nothing more. This is an especially important concept because as believers, they were denied higher education, had no opportunities for good careers. They would never be able to buy a house or a car. But it didn't matter. Because when they had Christ, they needed nothing more. This conviction produced wonderful believers. What a challenge in our world that has so much. Prosperity is deadly, folks. Whether we're in oppression or prosperity, we have to look beyond that and see Christ. I used to sing a little song, a lot of you did too, back I don't know how long ago. I think I remember singing it as a teenager. It was a little ditty of a song that maybe we'll sing next week said, Christ is all I need, Christ is all I need, all, all I need. And then it simply repeated it, Christ is all I need, Christ is all I need, all, all I need. I remember singing that as a 17-year-old kid with great gusto. I didn't have anything anyway, so, so why not say Christ is all I need? But now, a few years later, as I look at all I have and all that God has blessed me with, Can I honestly say Christ is all I need? What if he took it all away? What if we lost freedom? What if I lost money? What if we lost everything that is precious to us? Would Christ be enough? Yes, he would be. 
That's the message that is timeless right here. Christ is all we need under every circumstance. The only question is, do you know him? Is Christ your savior? Is Christ your master? Do you follow him? Death is the great equalizer. The day comes when no matter how much you have, you lay it all aside because it's a great equalizer. And you leave this world and all that's going to matter is whether or not you knew Jesus Christ. Do you know him? If you don't, please see us before you go. Father, we, we've looked at a very tough passage. I hope we've made sense of it. And Lord, I pray that each of us today might look into our own hearts Lord, I'm still learning the lesson that I thought I knew at 17, that you are all I need. Father, make it the reality in my life and in the life of all these good people. I pray for those that don't know you as Savior, Lord. Maybe this is the day when you open their eyes to the truth of their need for Christ. I would pray that in Christ's name. Amen.